Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode four, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 1975 suburban gothic film, The Stepford Wives, Based on the novel by Ira Levin, the film was directed by Brian Forbes and written by William Goldman. The film stars Catherine Ross, Paula Prentice, Peter Masterson, and Nanette Newman. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you please start us off with a plot summary? Sure. Aspiring photographer and feminist Joanna is forced to move from her home in New York City to the small town of Stepford, Connecticut by her husband. While in Stepford, Joanna and her new friend Bobby begin to notice how the women of Stepford act strange. Not only are they creepily subservient to their husbands, but they also act as if they aren't human. When Bobby suddenly starts acting strange too, Joanna wonders if she will be next. Is there simply something in the water, or is it something much more sinister? Dun, dun, dun! Eh. (laughs) Uh, And if you haven't seen this film, everyone, it is available for free on YouTube. There's like a couple different options for you to choose from, so definitely check out the original The Stepford Wives. Okay, so let's get into the production. Author Ira Levin, most known for his novel Rosemary's Baby from 1967, wrote his book The Stepford Wives in 1972. The novel, much like Rosemary's Baby, has obvious satire under its disturbing plot. But even so, it became extremely influential to feminist horror after it was published. According to the haughty culturist, quote, The Handmaid's Tale, first published in 1985, anticipates a violent regime which strips away women's rights and turns them back into servers and breeders. More than a decade before Margaret Atwood, however, Ira Levin had already explored the feminist dystopia in his novel The Stepford Wives. Both books consider what life in the West would be like if women's lib and feminism were neatly rolled back. But in Stepford, this reverse revolution doesn't come with guns and threats, but with secrecy and stealth. And rather than reducing women to drudges, it elevates them to flawless goddesses on the surface, at least, unquote. And according to Entertainment Weekly, producer Edgar J. Shurick recruited British director Brian Forbes to direct the screenplay uh, that was written by Oscar winner William Goldman, and they soon set out finding their Joanna. In the end, the role of the doomed heroine went to Catherine Ross, then best known for The Graduate and Goldman's Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. 
And um, I watched a short documentary on the making of this film on YouTube, and apparently Forbes and Goldman hated each other. Oh, no. I mean, it was almost (laughs) to the point where I was like, this is a really awkward, like, watching it. Obviously, Goldman was not in the documentary. I think he passed away before it was done. Um, But it was, it was, um, it was really awkward to watch them talk about how much they kind of hated (laughs) how much Goldman and Forbes hated each other and like Goldman was upset that Forbes had cast his wife Nanette Newman in the very small role of Carol uh for more than one reason but um I think like the biggest reason was that Nanette wasn't quote unquote thin and like Goldman blamed this on Forbes like choice of the women not wearing scantily clad outfits because like in goldman's script he wanted them to all kind of be dressed like playboy bunnies yeah which is not in the book (laughs) and i just feel like that's so bogus because like first of all goldman was body shaming nanette newman which like fuck you dude but also I think making women cover their bodies, especially during this time of, like, women's liberation in the 70s, I think that just makes much more sense. Yes. Agreed. 100%. Right. Because it was, I think for the women at this time, it was all about, like, wearing, like, more scantily clad clothing because Mm -hmm. they had the choice to. And then... Forbes turned it around and had them wearing like almost like prairie dresses, like super long, lacy. <laughs> they're very the colors. They're, on yeah, those it's kind of like Victorian esque, like prairie esque. It's weird, but it yeah. works in my opinion. And I feel like that that's I like that way more than the idea of them dressing like Playboy bunnies. Like that's ridiculous. But anyway, right. I know this film's supposed to be satire, everyone, but I don't feel like it worked. Like that would work <laughs> for Agreed. it. Okay. Uh, Goldman also didn't like the fact that Forbes, like, changed some dialogue in the script, like, that dialogue that he felt like didn't work, so he changed it. And he also changed the ending of the film, which Goldman, like, really, like, resented him for. Uh, Apparently, the ending was a lot more violent. And um, I saw on, like, the IMDb message boards that the violent confrontation between Joanna and her robot doppelganger, like, that was what was cut from the script. Instead, it sort of, like, fades to black with, like, the doppelganger, like, coming up to her and about to kill her. Right. So I guess you actually see what happens in the original script. But again, I think that this works because there's an air of mystery to what happened, you know? So. It's always way scarier when you can't see what's going on. I yeah. think, anyway, because your why imagination are of is the like, dark. <gasps> yeah, exactly. That's just that's like a key like thing in our DNA is like we can't we're afraid of what we can't see and what we don't understand, and that's exactly mm. what happens. So, whatever, Oscar winner <laughs> William Goldman. <laughs> okay, but anyway. Uh, According to Entertainment Weekly, quote, the film was shot on location in Connecticut with towns like Darien and Fairfield standing in for the utopian Stepford. Quote, a lot of horror movies are dark and gloomy and sinister, but this was a horror that was in sunlight with beautiful surroundings and beautiful people, says Nanette Newman. She also said it made it so it lulled you along until it finally terrified you, unquote. 
And according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, director Forbes purposefully chose white and bright colors for the setting of the film, attempting to make a thriller in sunlight, with the exception of the stormy night finale. And the film is almost oversaturated oversaturated with bright light and cheery settings. And all the locations were actual places. Uh, No sets were built for the whole film. Wow. Yeah, so it gave it sort of a realism under its satir like it's it's being yeah. satirical. <laughs> According to Box Office Mojo, uh the Stepford Wives premiered theatrically in the United States on February twelfth, nineteen seventy-five, and grossed approximately four million in North America. And I couldn't find anywhere uh what its budget was originally. So I'm not sure how well it did financially, but um the critical response at the time of its release was mixed, and not just from film critics, but feminists as well. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, initial reaction to the film by feminist groups was not favorable, with one studio screening for feminist activists being met with hisses, groans, and goffs. Wow. Yeah, despite Betty Friedan's a popular book, The Feminine Mystique, being a major influence on the original novel upon which the film was based, Frieden's response to the film was highly critical, calling it a ripoff of the women's movement. Frieden commented that women should boycott the film and attempt to diminish any publicity for it. But writer Gail Green, however, lauded the film, commenting, I loved it. Those men were like a lot of men I've known in my life, unquote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Stepford Wives not only inspired countless books and films on feminist horror, but are soci- but also societal and racial horror. Jordan Peele has stated that The Stepford Wives was a major inspiration for his film Get Out, which he won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. You can see many, many similarities in the film, including the fact that both main characters are photographers. And we'll talk more about this later. Yes. Ooh. According to James Kendrick, quote, The Stepford Wives contains a number of timeless scenes that are the essence of women's fears about the patriarchal society in which they live, unquote. And according to author Karina from Horror Film History, quote, Stepford Wife has entered our language as a term to describe any woman who is spookily submissive. The film has stood the test of time worryingly so, and still has the power to chill the bones of any woman who has been told to be nice, behave, and stay out of men's way, unquote. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes, and it passes a lot, which is really nice. So Nancy's dream team test, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. So let's start off this conversation with what is a Stepford wife? And we'll obviously we'll talk a little bit about 1970s feminism as well, which we have talked about before, but we'll kind of throw in how it relates to this film. According to Aditya Prasad, Jane Elliott writes that the Stepford metaphor exemplifies the most salient and troublesome 
of the two most salient and troublesome aspects of 1970s popular U.S. feminism. It's different from activism feminism and its remarkable ability to define feminist politics in the national imagination for decades despite and because of that difference. She ultimately argues that while second-wave feminism focused on issues such as rape, pornography, and violence against women, the film presents us with a fair, milder form of feminism, one that serves primarily to provide excitement to the dreary life of the white suburban housewife. Therefore, instead of providing a more accurate controversial radical picture of second wave feminism, it can be argued that the version presented by the film is designed to be palatable to society, which led it to be a popular response to feminism while also paying a very, while also playing to the very forces its parent wave sought to oppose, unquote. And Prasad goes on to say, Quote, an interesting aspect of the Stepford Wives' reflections on society is the discourse it provides on issues of domesticity and housewifery. By juxtaposing robots and housewives, the film portrays how much of a traditional domestic role of women in the household is composed of drudgery, robotic tasks performed on the behest of the hegemonic patriarchal patriarchal system. Elliot argues that the film serves to highlight how time and domestic labor are intrinsically linked, writing that while the consciousness raising session does finally take place in the film, it only serves to underscore this fixation on the link between time and housework that structures the lives of the women of Stepford, unquote. And uh, this fixation is most evident in the line, if time is your enemy, get easy on, that one Stepford wife says to another, referencing a household product she uses. Uh, Prasad says, citing the scene this conversation takes place in, Elliot argues that the ideological control of the patriarchal society over women utilizes domesticity in relation to time, preventing women from engaging in any liberating discourse. This use of domestic time as a tool to control is what Elliot calls Sisyphean time. In fact, this idea was a product of many feminist theories of the 1970s, which stated that in society, women's lives only progressed until they married and were forced to give up most things meaningful to them in order to serve a role as a servant of the patriarchal household. Once entrenched in the system, women were treated such as the Stepford Wives are, as machines or robots. Therefore, The Stepford Wives presents as dark satire the harmful effects of the quote-unquote ideal domestic function women were forced to play in 1970s suburban American society, unquote. So that's sort of how this film relates to 70s, 1970s feminism. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting because... I mean, even when Joanna tries to talk to the photo critic about her work, mm-hmm. it still centers on domesticity. Like, it's all photos of her kids and the mm-hmm. neighbor's kids. So even though she's trying to break free and, you know, make a name for herself, she's still using what little she has of a life in Stepford to move forward. And she still has to get approval from a man that her work is acceptable. It's like a way of saying that her greatest accomplishment to date is making her children and raising them so she can use them for these photos. 
Like, she finally gets praise from the mustache guy (laughs) for the work that reflects the domestic side of her. And it's very frustrating because she is trying so hard to be recognized for her photography, but doesn't get noticed until she gives him something maternal or domestic to look at. Yes, exactly. And... Uh, we're going to talk more about Joanna and her photography towards the end of this episode. Um, but that is so spot on. It's true. Ugh. Like, she can't seem to get away from it. Like, even her downtime is domestic. Yeah. Which, it, that happens to mothers all of the time. Ugh. So but- much. It's like, <laughs> it's like when people are like, oh, sleep when the baby sleeps. And then you're like, yeah, let me just do these eight ton loads of laundry and catch up on the dishes it's like oh my god it never ends right (laughs) and like let's talk about the term stepford wife uh according to the essay what does it mean to call a woman a stepford wife by elise ray helford quote although the term is almost exclusively considered an insult There are exceptions. Adopting conservative Christian norms, for example, is the group website stepfordwives.org, which celebrates deferring to our men and letting them make all of the decisions that affect us and our households, unquote. (laughs) Clearly, the irony of the term stepford wife has eluded them, unquote. (laughs) No. Yeah. Oh, honeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really sad, actually. Oh. Um, this term, Stepford wife, isn't considered Stepford syndrome, though, which we'll talk about later. But for now, uh, now that we know what this term is and where it comes from, let's talk about the unhappy housewife trope. I want to start this topic off by talking about codependency. Um, This film does a great job at pointing out the abusive behavior that happens between codependent people. Instead of portraying the women as, like, the quote-unquote nagging housewives, the film got to the source of what made them truly unhappy. And I think for many women in this position, they're made to feel silly for expressing how annoying it is that they don't get help with chores or, like, things around the house because it's, like, not a big deal. However, (laughs) we all know how frustrating it feels when we don't have time to do what we want or what gives us joy because we have a household to run. And there's actually, like, data that shows how far we've come when it comes to that in the last century. And it isn't that far. Like, it's not great. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, quote, Ramey reports that in the 1960s, housewives spent less time on food preparation and clothing care, but more time on care of others and much more time on purchasing household on purchasing household management and travel than farm wives and town housewives did in the 1920s. Changes in living situations have had a large effect on home production. From 1900 to 1930, single employed women spent an estimated seven hours a week on home production. Most of them lived in boarding houses or with their families and relied on mothers or boarding house keepers for their home production. 
by 1965, they were spending 17 hours per week in home production. By 2005, time spent had risen to 18.1 hours per week. Hmm. Unquote. Yeah. So, you would think that as time goes on, you would be spending less time on this kind of stuff, but... This study looked at single women in the 1960s, not even women with partners or children to look after. So that's almost two and a half hours a day dedicated to housework. So let's say those two and a half hours are dedicated to one person. Multiply that by the number of people in your family. And let's say for the film's sake, we look at Joanna's family. That's four people. Literally 10 hours worth of work a day. So, 70 hours a week? Like, the number of hours we spend on chores had only risen from 1965 to 2005, which is absolutely bananas to me. Like, I was reading this and I was like, I cannot believe this. I almost can't either. Like, that, legitimately, like, that is actually really discouraging. And I want to know, what are we doing differently now that is creating more housework? <laughs> because I, I have no data to support this, so maybe you have a theory or maybe you have the actual answer to this, but I feel like people are having less children now, so that's less time with childcare. Plus mm-hmm. we have more affordable resources now to help with chores, like we mm-hmm. have online grocery shopping and delivery, we have Roombas, you know, to vacuum for us. Right. And like listen, I I never feel like I have enough time, but I definitely feel like I have more time now than, like, my great-grandmother did. Yeah. Like, she used to be scared of her husband seeing her relax. So she would carry a dish rag around with her. And if he ever came into a room, she would literally, like, whip out the dish rag and she would just start wiping down whatever was in front of her. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it was like, like, if Luke sees me doing random housework, he's like, calm down sit down hang out with us like chill like you don't need to do anything right now (laughs) you know and like I usually clean when I'm like stressed but to to add to this discussion like I just feel like what do you know like what why is it gone up if I had to guess honestly I don't have any like data to back this up but it has to do a lot with consumer culture and Mm -hmm. um like feeling like you need all of this stuff and you need like all of this like extra like whatever is in your home so it gives you kind of I feel anyway like you're accumulating so much stuff that you spend a shit ton of time like organizing and cleaning and being like oh my god why do we have such a tiny house with all of this stuff and like (laughs) if you have all of this stuff and you have a family living in your house as well like things are bound to get disheveled um but not only that that's like oh sorry go ahead no, no, no. I was just thinking, like, that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> like, kids have more toys. Like, we have more. Like, like I was saying, we have Roombas. We have all this stuff. We have all this yeah. stuff. Why do we still have Why do we still have work to do? It's because we have all that stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, like, a, a big part of the, watching this film for me, too, was, like, all of these women were forced to give up a lot of, like, their own stuff that, like, made them really happy and 
instead so it was replaced so, gotcha. with okay. like all of these like home goods and like things that you had to take care of in the home and like all of the focus was placed on making sure that like your everything was put in place in your domestic life so you didn't have like all of these other distractions or like these little tidbits here and there of like these hobbies and stuff to like <laughs> keep you occupied you just you feel the need for more and more and more it's kind of it's what living in a capitalist society does to you i think wow yeah well that's a good observation if anyone knows anything more about this abby and i would love to hear about it so please contact us and let us know um but that sounds like a that sounds right to me honestly um i want to add to this discussion with chores um Look, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like, I don't leave to go to work like my husband does. However, we share household chores because I'm not the only one who lives here. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I'm very lucky to have a partner who is more than happy to share the load. And this is why I think the only time a housewife is really, truly unhappy is when it's not her choice to be there in the home in the first place. Yeah, I agree. Or she is left to do everything herself and does not have a supportive partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I think that that is why there's that trope exists in the first place, is because a woman is maybe made to be a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home wife, and she literally does every chore. Like my great-grandmother, who, like, could not relax because that was like, that was quote unquote, her job was to take care of the house. So if she was relaxing, it was like, she was lazy and she wasn't doing her job. Uh, the worst. It's it's really sad. So I don't, I don't really want to focus too much more on this topic because there's so much more to this film. Um, I mean, and Jessica Hester says it pretty well, like focusing on the trope of the unhappy housewife defangs some of the film's bite then and now its true power rests in the depiction of how a place can bend an individual maybe you adopt a new town's linguistic quirks or pick up its recipes meeting neighbors may be easy or terrifying but nowhere other than stepford does a new zip code so thoroughly and irreparably transform the contours of one's life and personality unquote And that brings us to our next topic, Mm -hmm. psychology and the Stepford Wives. And the first part of this is going to be crowd behavior, geography, and self. According to Jessica Hester, in the 1957 novel The Crack in the Picture Window, Mary Drone is sure that the house she inhabited had helped spoil her day, that it was harming her marriage and corroding her life. The author, John Keats, noted that the family's experience casts an ominous tinge on Winston Churchill's famous phrase, we shape our dwellings and then our dwellings shape us. That's especially true in Stepford. The longer women live there, the less they feel like themselves. They get woozy and disoriented, swooning beneath trees heavy with pink blossoms, and then mysteriously, they transform. Joanna's therapist explains that Stepford has a reputation for being unfriendly. Certain towns, she says, draw certain kinds of people. She rattles off names of towns in Massachusetts that attract artists and one that's full of therapists. One family tells another word spread deliberately via invitations passed between like-minded people 
When a family chooses to move to Stepford, they aren't just putting down a payment on tidy lawns, crisp siding, and old trees. They are subscribing to a mentality. Geography and identity do indeed intersect, unquote. Which I never really thought about uh, before this, but it makes sense. Yeah, that actually, it really does. We talk about that a lot in my sociology class. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a, a travel blog for Connecticut called CTMQ, and um, Ira Levin based Stepford off of the town of Wilton, apparently, but the author of this blog uh, thinks that um, Levin might have also based it off of Darien. Uh, the blogger writes, quote, Joanna's bestie, Bobby Marco, notes that her last name was Markowitz but says it was changed, quote-unquote, for appearances. And (laughs) Yeah, and Darian has a very well-known anti-Semitic history. Author Ira Levin would have known this, and a local gossip reporter in the movie notes that Stepford is the most progressive town around, stating that the first Chinese restaurant in Fairville County was there. Oh my god, I cringed so hard at that line. (laughs) I was like... Wow. Goddamn. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely like a racist mentality. <laughs> yes. An anti-Semitic mentality in Stepford. Yeah. And according to A. Al-Shaban, quote, in Ira Levin's The Stepford Wives, a collectivist-oriented society is created through de-individuation, obedience, compliance, and conformity in group norms. A malevolent leader clouds Stepford's men, thinking and cultivates the perception that women are less than human, making them appear as an enemy deserving of annihilation, unquote. So these women are changing into these housewives because it's how they'll be able to assimilate nicely. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the reality is that they're being killed and turned into robots, but right. <laughs> metaphorically, it's almost like this is how they're able to assimilate and like get along with everyone around them Yeah, and make friends. And I feel like this has definitely happened to me in every city and state that I've been in. Like One of the reasons why I wanted to leave New York City was because I could feel myself becoming rough around the edges mm-hmm. and I didn't like it. Yeah. And, like, I had to be that way. I felt at least I had to be that way to survive. And I'm not saying everyone in New York City is like that. Like, that's a stereotype. But I think for me, like, I have a very, I feel like I have a very gentle, soft personality. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> I just did not mesh with that big city life personality. I mean, not just personality-wise, but I feel like even my wardrobe has changed from city to city that I've lived in. And I've always sort of had my own, like, unique flair, I guess. But, like, I've definitely felt like I've had to buy, like, new clothes everywhere I go. In a way, it makes it more comfortable mm-hmm. because um, I think it's hard for a lot of people, too, to feel like they stand out too much. Mm-hmm. Not that I think that it would be hard for you because you're pretty confident wherever you go. <laughs> but Thanks. I definitely see, like, what you're saying about that and how you... D- you change. You you kind of become a chameleon when it comes to your surroundings. And some people take it to the extreme. <laughs> right. And as we see in Stepford. <laughs> let's talk about Stepford syndrome. 
Yes. Okay. So I'm going to talk more about codependency. (laughs) So, so around 10 years after this film was released, Codependent No More was published by Melody Beattie. And I highly recommend this book to everyone speaking as a future therapist, because everyone should read it at least once, but it's good to reference it often. Um, I love it. I think it's a great book. Anyway, according to a quick description I pulled off of Wikipedia, a codependent is someone who cannot function on their own and whose thinking and behavior is instead organized around another person, process, or substance. And Many codependents place a lower priority on their own needs while being excessively preoccupied with the needs of others. So this sounds a lot like the women in this film after being turned into robots, right? And maybe even like a little bit beforehand. But I mean, we're no stranger to this concept as the ideal housewife phenomenon has been around for a while. We started researching it in the 1940s when psychologists and doctors started looking at the family dynamics surrounding addiction, and the term became associated with the negative connotations that surrounded alcoholism and addiction and the people who were trapped in relationships in which this was an issue. Since then, the term has broadened to include a lot of different factors, which, thank God, because in my opinion... Everybody is at least a teeny tiny bit codependent. But Ross Rosenberg writes for Psych Central, By the mid-1980s, thanks to many key advances within the chemical dependency and addiction treatment fields, the term codependency took on a more broadly understanding meaning. It evolved to describe a person who was habitually attracted to or in a relationship with a narcissist and or addict. So codependents were understood to be people pleasers who would reflexively sacrifice and care for others who would not care for them in return. They felt powerless to resist relationships with addicted, controlling, and or narcissistic individuals. It became very evident that codependents came from all walks of life and were not necessarily only in relationships with addicted individuals. Thanks to codependency, authors like Melody Beattie, Claudia Black, John Friel, Terry Kellogg, and Pia Melody, just to name a few, the term codependency finally saw the light of day. It came out of the closet and was no longer considered a shameful secret for which there was no help. These early books helped change the world's attitude toward the partners of addicts or narcissists who were no longer viewed as weak and defenseless victims who were powerless to leave their harmful and dysfunctional relationships. So, in a way, Joanna and Bobby try to define this. So, in the film, it's, like, kind of ahead of its time a little bit. But they try to make the other women aware of what's happening because they see the issue, but maybe just didn't have a name or a way to describe it. So, sitting here watching this film, when they talk about something being in the water i just wanted to shout like it's codependency ladies like (laughs) that's what you're looking for but i mean like sitting there watching this i'm like oh my god like these women are with these men who are like so focused on only what they want and like only having the perfect life and the perfect housewife and stuff like that and i was like oh my god like 
it's uh it's so frightening it's like the definition of what they talk about in codependent no more so like yeah it's frightening and like i want to add i think the term stepford syndrome has also been used for housewives who want to get like breast enlargements yeah like breast implants and facelifts yep but i believe that it has been disputed because the majority of plastic surgeons who help these women have said that these women want plastic surgery because they just they want it right not because their male partners want them to have it So, like, they want to change their image because it's their choice, going back to choice, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think that that's, like, you know, talking about, like, the Stepford Syndrome, like, you know, feeling like you need to be, like, that Christian group. Like, my husband is going to decide everything for me. You know, my husband is going to take care of me, like, every, you know, whatever. And I'm going to take care of him and I'm going to do everything for him because he gives me a roof to live. You know, it's like. Yeah, like, the male is the most important part of their life or their family. And it's like, no, it's just, it's just a a portion of it. (laughs) It's just a portion of it. Exactly. Like every family unit has to, like, you have to work as a team. Like nobody is like top tier at all, you know? Right. And speaking of the female image, let's talk about the female image captured. (laughs) So the women of Stepford are literally captured and replaced, but even before that, their image is stolen. So this is going to be a long quote, so please bear with me. Um, but it's so good, so you're you're gonna listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, according to the essay "The Stepford Wives: The Recreated w- Woman" by Lily Ann Baruskowski, um, when a woman gets created. Her appearance remains crucially important. This directly contrasts contrasts with the aesthetic involved in creating a male monster. The Ooh. men employ their varied and collective scientific talents in cication in the film of the of the discrepancy between a woman's physical reality and the ideal which and the ideal which men fantasize. Joanna, gazing upon her portrait, comments that she doesn't equal the image. She simply isn't as attractive. She admonishes the artist for blighting the lives of countless young women by comparing them to likenesses which can never become their reality. Historically, men's capturing of the woman's image has been crucial in establishing men's dominance, and it has traditionally been associated with power over the depicted. As James George Fraser explains in The Golden Bow, they, the portraits, are often believed to contain the soul of the person portrayed. People who hold this belief are naturally loath to their likenesses taken. For if the portrait is the soul, or at least a vital part of the person portrayed, whoever possesses the portrait will be able to exercise a fatal influence over the origin of it. The list lets the men program the androids with a restricted vocabulary. Limiting words, the primary means of expression, also limits knowledge, understanding, self-expression, and creativity. Potentially dangerous words are excluded from the vocabulary, ones such as archaic, which was originally used by Joanna to describe the sexually elusive men's association. In symbolic terms, women cannot have any control over, nor can they conceptually deal with that which they cannot name. 
The third preparation phase for transformation involves the men's constructing a model of the women's bedroom. When the men's association tour Joanna's new home, they become too interested in the bedroom furnishings and remain longer than protocol would allow. In film, an entry into a bedroom has a voyeuristic component, one which relates to the classical horror motif of the villain's intrusion upon the bedroom and attacking the woman while she defenselessly sleeps. The women's final transformation in the Stepford Wives occurs during a second honeymoon weekend, culminating in the confrontation in the new bedroom, unquote. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of that essay. You all need to read it. It's so, so good. It's in the show notes. Check it out. Like that whole quote, like, ooh, it just made my mind go in like four different directions at once. I was like, oh, God. It's this film is is so deep. There's so much to it. And I think the fact that um, they talk about the capturing of the woman's image again, like it's like taking somebody's picture without their permission. Mm hmm. And that's kind of what happens in this. This man draws her picture without her permission. Yeah. And he draws her in a way where he draws her almost in the image that he wants to see. Correct. Which is yes. what why he does it. So it's pretty uh pretty spooky. It's gross. <laughs> it's gross. Um so let's now talk about eyes photography and the gaze in Stepford. So Berzokowski uh, says this, quote, not only does Joanna's photography allow her to go out into the world and explore on her own terms, it also awards her financially, making her more independent from her husband, unquote. And um, Joanna's use of her gaze is also very freeing. It's a skill and a career she can have that has nothing to do with her domestic life. Or does it? Turns out, like, it does (laughs) because she takes pictures of domestic life. But even so, it's so important for women, especially mothers, to have something to escape to, whether it be their work, their school, exercise, friends, travel, photography, writing, painting, or podcasts. Yes. (laughs) And it can be all of those things, too, honestly. It doesn't have to be, like, one form of escapism. You can do all kinds of things to escape your domestic life. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when Joanna's eyes are literally stolen from her, she loses her sense of self. Joanna's role as a gothic heroine also relates to her love of photography. So, according to the Melodrama Research Group of Kent, quote, Joanna's job as a photographer complements her role as an inquisitive gothic heroine, although the agency Joanna enjoys through her control of the lens, along with her investigative abilities, is always compromised. Significantly, Joanna is not a successful photographer, and the only pictures which garner critical interest are of domestic family scenes, like you said, Abby. Mm -hmm. Instead, The Stepford Wives emphasizes how Joanna fails to look both in her capacity as a photographer and metaphorically in her ability to see the truth about Stepford's community. The point of view shots used to depict Joanna's picture taking become ironic. Joanna's control over these images and by extension over what the viewer sees is illusionary and transitory. And Joanna herself will quite literally be replaced by a body that has been made to fulfill an image which adheres to the standards set by the men's desires, unquote. 
wild, right? Yes. (laughs) And I want to talk a little bit more about this. So according to the essay, Is a Female Gaze Possible in Cinema by Elise Ray Helford, quote, the most common form of challenge to the male gaze is arguably the highlighting or satirizing of its operation. In Film and the Masquerade, critic Mary Ann Doan, for instance, posits that the problem is one of proximity. Women need distance from their images, ways to see the gaze at work and resist its pull. She finds an example in the figure of the woman wearing glasses. Glasses on an individual signify an active gaze, a looking back. Eyewear is not the only form of achieving an observably observably active gaze, of course. Women photographers in films may offer a similar challenge, as seen in The Stepford Wives, where our photographer protagonist Joanna is the first woman to see through the macabre plan of the men of Stepford to murder their wives and replace them with robots, unquote. And this is true. Joanna is the first one to really notice that something is amiss in Stepford. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's also interesting that by being a photographer, there is a degree of separation between Joanna and her subjects. Like a camera stands between her and what she sees. So even though she is able to, I guess, quote unquote, get a better look at everything, it's too late to stop anything by the time she gets to it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So, like, she's a documentarian at heart. So when it comes time for her to be the subject, she can't stop what is happening. And this is all foreshadowed at the very beginning of the film when she takes her last photo in New York City. And it's a man carrying a naked store mannequin. Oh, I loved that about yeah. this movie. I loved that shot. Yeah, it was great. And I also want to connect this to her feminist activism that she talks about. Both her and Bobby uh, apparently were involved in women's rights movements uh, before they moved to Stepford, possibly a few years before, Mm -hmm. because it's kind of started in the early 60s. And this is 1975 at this point. Right. It's still going on. But it was and it was at I think it was at its height. But it was like it was almost the 80s. It was sort of kind of tinkering out it was like not i don't think at this point it was i guess it was at its peak is what i should say after this it kind of like died down yeah so i think that like they had gotten into women's rights activism but it was like a few years ago like possibly before their kids were born even possibly before they were married Mm -hmm. which is also kind of interesting um but both her and bobby were involved in women's rights before they moved to stepford Um, And when they talk about it, they're like extremely casual about it. Like even Bobby says something like, I didn't burn my bra or anything. You know, Mm -hmm. like she's like, I'm not one of those feminists. Right. You know. And um, she's kind of like hinting or maybe not so much, but she's kind of trying to say like she maybe like passively got involved in the movement and let other women do the really hard work. And by other women, I mean black women. (laughs) yeah (laughs) so to be honest i can't remember what happens in the book but i think it's interesting that the young woman who doesn't seem to be affected yet by the shadiness of stepford is the black woman who moves to stepford at the end of the film like you see her and her husband in the grocery store Mm -hmm. and they're surrounded by all these white women who are shopping which is also kind of funny 
because it's this woman and her husband. So it's a unit, like a partnership. Mm-hmm. And they're doing the shopping together. And compare that to all the white women who are shopping on their own. Right. So I just think that's an interesting observation. Yes. Um, but anyway, we can assume that Joanna's part in the movement was purely for documentation, which I don't want to say there's anything wrong with because it's extremely important to have major events documented by someone. But at the same time, the person who's documenting it, they're not supposed to be involved at all. Like they need to have the events like in front of them play out. Like they can't like change any of any of the events that are happening in front of them. Otherwise, right. they're not documenting truth. Right. Um, And it's morally ambiguous. I know that's maybe a topic for another day. But um, documentarians are just meant to spread the news to others, which is what Joanna tries to do. But in the end, she loses her eyes. She isn't herself anymore. And if she's no longer able to take pictures, then what's left? You know, it kind of makes me wonder a little bit, too, when you were talking about how she and Bobby were, like, more casually involved in the movement um i wonder if that speaks to like how maybe they should have been a little bit more involved and should have been a little bit more aware and it maybe would have helped them out a little bit more during their time in stepford because it took them a while to notice that things were amiss and like it it, by the time they realized it was too late and they, like, could not get out. And which I, is I d- why I think... Which is why I think that the black couple will not go through what has happened. Right. Yes. <laughs> because they literally cannot afford to be passive about anything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, in a way, it's kind of like their white privilege just kind of bites them in the ass in the end. Definitely. And I think the use of the camera is is huge here because there is a degree of separation yep. between um, Joanna and the horror that's happening in front of her. Yeah. It's kind of like that thing, like, it could never happen to me. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. So I kind of want to add, this is a really short little thing, Um uh, it's sort of like a, our final thought, I guess it is. But um, I want to talk a very little bit about queerness in Stepford. Um, this sort of relates back to the horror of assimilation, which we mentioned earlier. Um, according to the essay, The Horror of Assimilation, Queerness in Ira Levin's The Stepford Wives by Molly Adams, quote, ultimately, Levin leaves us with a valuable lesson in The Stepford Wives to fight assimilation like the disease it is and to refuse to concede even an inch of the ground we've gained. Cisgender and heterosexual people may consider themselves allies, but given the right circumstances, they'll throw any of us under the bus, unquote. And it's frightening. It's frightening. Like, there's a reason why queer people are afraid of hetero people. Yes. Because <laughs> they're scary as fuck. And like a friend of the show and an excellent entertainment writer named Ren mentioned on their Twitter that they would love to write a remake of this film. They tweeted on January 31st, 2021, quote, someone hire me to write a remake of The Stepford Wives because with my fears of cis allo heteronormativity, I would absolutely kill it, unquote. And yes, Ren, you would. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm ready for this. And 
Um, we talked a bit about it in our Twitter DMs, and they said that they would just make it very openly queer and trans and delve a bit further into, like, the gender roles thing of it all. So, that would be amazing, and I yes. would absolutely watch the shit out of that. Are you kidding me? Yes. Like, that's what, if you're going to remake The Stepford Wives in the 2020-ish, the 2020s, you know? Yeah. It needs to be this. Like, this is what it needs to be. So please follow Ren on their Twitter at B underscore Roll Banshee. They're seriously amazing. And I'm so excited for this. This movie needs to happen tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Start a freaking GoFundMe. Let's get this show on the road. (laughs) Yeah. And um, if anyone else like wants to talk to us about the queerness that Stepford um that's in the Stepford Wives. I would love to hear more about it. I love to hear everybody's um take on this kind of stuff. So please like message us on our social media. Like I want to hear what everyone has to stay say uh about like their perspective in the Stepford Absolutely. Wives. Absolutely. Yes. Ah, so that's it for this episode of Good Morning Nancy. <laughs> let's quickly talk about something nice that's happened because i think this is going to be like another hour-long episode (laughs) oh my god there's just so much to say oh well gracie you go first oh my god um i made a snowman today with my son oh he didn't do really anything he's only one but (laughs) we made a snowman and it was really fun and he turned one recently. Like, I Yay. can't believe it was a year ago almost that I gave birth to my child. Um, I, can't. I can't believe it. I know. And, but yeah, so like we made a snowman today. Um, I've been, I've been reading a lot more. I'm reading Sylvia Plath's new biography. Ooh. And I just got a new uh, book for my horror scholarly horror book collection <laughs> uh it's it's called darkly and it's by i think it's lila taylor is how you say their name and it's about go- southern gothic horror and people of color oh my god i need to read that oh my gosh so i as soon as i saw someone post about it on instagram i immediately like ran <laughs> ran to my computer to buy it oh my so God. it just arrived so i'm gonna start that so i'm excited that sounds amazing yes oh my god well congratulations on congratulations wow congratulations, congratulations on the snowman that i built <laughs> and the books that i'm reading <laughs> thanks abby well no i meant for for your tiny baby human's first birthday i can't believe oh it. yeah oh he did God. he did great yeah <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, um, man, I'm not going to lie. These last couple of weeks have been rough as far as uh, this pregnancy is going. But Mm. some highlights. Um, My sister-in-law gave me a pregnancy pillow. (laughs) Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) That has just been like the the love of my life (laughs) lately. (laughs) Um, so really enjoying that pregnancy pillow. Also, we finally got a goddamn humidifier for our bedroom Mm -hmm. because this winter has been so dry and I've just been doing my schoolwork with my pregnancy pillow and my humidifier and it's making me really happy. (laughs) 
Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. It's the little things, you know? <laughs> Oh, oh, and I just want to remind everyone, please let us know, like, happy things that have happened to you. Um, yes. I, we don't have, I, I didn't get anything from the last episode. Nobody wrote. Guys, what the heck? And I'm like, is everyone really that sad? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, you guys, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, let us know. Uh, yeah, so please let us know any little happy things that have happened to you all. Yeah, uh, we would really love to hear about it. Seriously. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. Yeah, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. Don't forget, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.